Scripture this morning comes from Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 9. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom, was, er, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from the men who hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are... With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, Palm Sunday is the day that we remember where Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem as the king. The cries of Hosanna were going out before him as he was welcomed into the city. But that week held much more than just him being heralded as a king and cried to as Hosanna cries went out, cried to as a king. That week was a week that held much turmoil, a week that held a lot of Questions and traps were laid for him so that they might catch him in something so that they could condemn him. That week ended in his arrest and crucifixion. And it seemed as if within a week for that all to happen, that things went off the rails quickly. That for some of the very same people that were likely in the crowd crying out, Hosanna, as he comes into the city, where some of the crowd that were then at the end of the week saying, crucify him and asking for his death. It would seem that things had gone off the rails. That's at least what some would have thought. But we know, according to the scripture, that that was part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was spoken of beforehand. Not only was it foreknown that there was this definite plan laid out from before creation of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. But it was spoken of in the scripture. 
And foundational to the New Testament's understanding of the person and work of Jesus is this great passage that's in front of us this morning that starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and goes all the way through 53. It's this great passage of Jesus Christ. Amen. And as we turn there this morning, let's stop and pray and ask for God to help us on this Palm Sunday to behold this servant. Father in heaven, would you please help us? Behold is one of the most merciful, gracious commands in all of the scripture. And we are to behold the servant. So I pray that you'd help us to rightly do so this morning as we turn to Isaiah 52 and 53. Overwhelm us with his greatness. Show us how much we need him and what he's accomplished on our behalf. And it's in that servant's name that we pray. Amen. A little over a month ago, uh, Oklahoma State University's athletic department released a vision plan for their athletic department, a stunning, massive $325 million project that uh, adds facilities and amenities for their athletic department all over the place for almost every single athletic uh, event that they hold, uh, any team that they have, they, they are working on improvements. It, it's this amazing looking blueprint uh, of what the future could hold should this project get accomplished. And it sounds really great. As someone who wants uh, OSU Athletics to, to improve and to move forward and to be good, to, to do like high-ranking great things, it sounds really great. But then I think, well, how are they going to do that? <laughs> $325 million project is a massive project, and they never came out and said, hey, we've got a donor, we're already halfway there. They just said, here's the project, it's $325 million, that's what we think. There it is. That's it. Now you have the blueprints. This is what we want to do. The, the plan is really great, but you've got to think, like, where's the money coming from? $325 million, where's it coming from to, to accomplish this? When Isaiah writes his book, there is a great deliverance that is promised, massive restoration and salvation that is held out before the people of God. Isaiah writes of this deliverance in great terms. It looks like it's of massive scale and great magnitude, but you've got to wonder, and surely as they're hearing these prophecies from Isaiah, they're thinking... Yeah, but how, Isaiah? How's that going to happen? That plan is great, but how are we going to accomplish this? And so Isaiah writes that, that God's people, here's what they need to look to, the how, and that they are to be a people who are going to behold this promised one who's going to come to fulfill these, these promises that he's made of salvation and restoration and deliverance. So Isaiah writes that God's people, that he would take hold of this writing and behold this suffering servant, behold this promised Messiah, and look to him for deliverance. Because the salvation that he's promised in his book is a salvation that's promised that's going to come through a servant. Not any servant, but a, a strange servant, a, a kind of substitutionary servant, who is himself a, a sinless sacrifice for his people. All the S's are there, right? He's a strange servant. He's a substitutionary servant. He's a sacrificial servant. We could add he's sinless. He's the sheep. We're going to see all of those things. The S's abound in this passage. We could, we could alliterate all day long. But this is what Isaiah wants us to behold, to look to this servant 
for this salvation and deliverance that he promised. Now, if we get to the context of the book of Isaiah, we, we are at this place where Israel, the people of God, they are a divided kingdom. We have the northern kingdom. They've already been exiled for their sin. All of their kings were, were evil and wicked, and the Lord judged them and brought Assyria to take them to exile. The southern kingdom is holding on, but just by a thread. They're almost as wicked as, as the northern kingdoms. And, and as they're living their lives, they're living it apart from the covenant that God has made with them. They are living outside of it, thinking that their way is better. And so because of that, God brings forth these prophets that will speak the truth in love to his people and tell them where they're covenant breaking. Tell them how they're walking against the Lord and to warn them of what's to come, the judgments that's to come if they continue walking in this manner. And so Isaiah does this. And, and for chapters 1 through 39 in the book of Isaiah, it's a lot of judgment to come. Because of their sin and rebellion against God, it's judgment, judgment, judgment. And he even looks at the nations because of their sin. They're going to get judgment, judgment, judgment. But in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, he shifts. He shifts to thinking and talking to the people of God as if they're on the other side of that judgment and exile that he's promised them. And he speaks to them then. And it's a reminder from the Lord to his people through this prophet that, that God is not a God who's going to abandon his people in exile. He's not a God who's going to be unfaithful to his promises. And that the exile that he's going to send them into, that's a, a mighty place. The Babylonians are going to come. They're the superpower of the world that's, that's rising on the scene in the book of Isaiah. They're going to come and they're going to take them by force. But they're not stronger than God. He's the sovereign one who can bring them back to the promised land. Amen. And the deliverance that's promised is a deliverance that, that actually pretty quickly you get to understand it is not just a deliverance for Israel. It's a multinational deliverance. And the restoration that he speaks of isn't just a restoration that just goes to the promised land. Pretty soon, if that's all that's happening in the book of Isaiah, you start to think like, well, that seems strange. If we're only talking about Jerusalem and the promised land, it's a restoration that's not just to the promised land, but to God himself. But how are we going to do that? Because their sins are great. How are we going to do that? Because their hearts still can't obey the law. Isaiah begins to tell us, looking ahead, how this great restoration, deliverance, salvation will be accomplished. And he does it with this section here, starting in chapter 52, verse 13, going all the way through chapter 53 in five sections, four of which we'll cover this morning. The first section uh, of this poem, this song, is verses 13 through 15, and, and it kind of gives an overview, a summary of what the entire section is going to be about, the entire passage. It sets the stage. It is giving us this explanation of what's going to happen, and the rest of the segments, the other four remaining after these first couple verses, are going to describe in more detail what he's saying. So listen to chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, behold, my servant. Behold, all right. It, it not only marks off this segment, like, Isaiah is starting something new. It's like a new, fresh idea. It marks off this new section, but also it invites attention, doesn't it? Like just that word, behold, see, look, pay attention here. He, he, the description that's following, he's saying it, it matters, it's important, you need to behold this one. And it's interesting that at this new section on the means of the salvation that he's been promising, on the how we're going to accomplish this salvation, the first thing that he tells them to do is to behold to see. I went when Israel was at the Red Sea, like coming out of a powerhouse, right? Coming out of Egypt. They, they couldn't have gone out on their own. Egypt had them under their thumb. They had no means of getting out uh, and having some sort of deliverance or redemption outside of Egypt. 
But the Lord bared his arm for them, showed his power and his might, and was bringing them out of Egypt. And when they get out of Egypt, they get to the Red Sea, and they they start to wonder now, what's next? And then the Egyptian army comes up behind them. And so you have the sea in front of you and the army behind you. This is a pretty bad spot, especially for some people that have been a little bit unbelieving, to say the least, right? And I love... The similar command that they get there that Isaiah gives here of behold. In Exodus chapter 14, he says, hey, you see this this army behind you and the sea in front of you? Here's what you need to do with it. You need to just be quiet and watch the deliverance from the Lord. Verse 13, fear not, stand firm and see, it's not the same word as behold, but see It's the same concept idea. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to do what? Be silent. See silently. Put your hand over your mouth. Watch the deliverance that's going to come from the Lord. They weren't to work their salvation. They were to see God's work of salvation. And the same kind of idea is what's going on here with Isaiah. This great restoration, deliverance, salvation that he's promised. He says, first thing you need to do is not work your way into it. You need to behold it. And you need to behold it in this one. And and it's interesting that a new exodus is being promised here in the book of Isaiah as well. And what is to be held in Isaiah is a wondrous mystery. Listen to verse 13 through 15. There's, There's exaltation and rejection all in the same passage. He says, behold my servant. He's going to act wisely. He's going to prosper. He's going to be high, shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has been told them, they see and that which they have not heard, they they understand. And what's the gap between verse 13 and 14? Here's one who's high and lifted up, and then now they're astonished, astonished at him because he's so marred, he's beyond human semblance. Like, that's a pretty big gap. High and lifted up, that's what he says in verse 13. That's only used four times in the book of Isaiah, and they're all really interesting. The first one is found in Isaiah chapter 6. It might be a passage you know. Isaiah sees a vision. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Same words, seated on his throne. Or in chapter 33, Back a few pages in your your Bible. In chapter 33, verse 10, he says, Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. In chapter 57, verse 15, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Each time that high and lifted up is used in the book of Isaiah, it speaks of the Lord. The Lord is the one who is high and lifted up. And so behold the servant who is high and lifted up. Like the servant is clearly being identified with the Lord himself. That's the servant. But then you read verse 14 and and he's like, okay, we're back to mystery again. And we can understand the Lord is being high and lifted up. But then now we read verse 14 and and he doesn't even look like a person. He he doesn't look exalted. He doesn't look like the, the Lord. Whatever they would have thought he looked like, surely that's not it. He looks like one who's rejected. He looks like a sufferer. He's marred here. The the servant is is one who, verse 14, is spoken of as being humiliated. And the humiliation, it's a shock to those who are near him. They they can't even recognize him. 
And it's a shock to those who are outside of him. The, the nations and kings, the, the mighty, they're like, they're confused by this too. And yet it's in the context, if we go to verse 15, of this humiliation, of this suffering and of this rejection that he sprinkles nations. Sprinkling, like, that's priestly type work often in the scriptures. So you, you think, like, here's priestly work going on for the servant who is high and lifted up, and it's affecting nations and yet it's in the context of suffering and humiliation. All right, so that's the summary, those three verses. So we've got work to do when we go to the next four, and we're only going to do a few more this morning. The means of restoration and salvation that Isaiah pictures here is through a servant. A strange servant. It's, it's full of, of paradoxes. He's going to prosper. He's going to act wisely, prosper. But he's going to suffer. He's going to be exalted and he's going to be marred. He's unattractive and yet he sprinkles the nations. There's surprising aspects to this. And probably many of them are, are disappointing aspects. He confounds, it seems to say, the sense is that he is confounding human wisdom. That they can't figure out what to do with this one. That salvation would come through the means of a servant like this is unheard of. It's not done. And yet that was Isaiah's news. Here's behold. Here's how the restoration is coming. The servant... And this is how we can describe him. And he continues this humiliation of the servant and thinking about what he's going to be like when he talks in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I is confounding. But then we see in verse 1 that we're back to the arm of the Lord is being revealed. That it's the Lord's doing. That's what's happening here. This servant coming is the Lord's doing. It's God who's working this salvation and restoration. Through the servant, his arm is being revealed. The servant is the revealing of the arm of the Lord. The, the arm of the Lord is also spoken of in Isaiah. And look, look at a few instances in chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms, and he will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. The arm is this might and salvation. It's also caring and gentle and kind to his own. Look in chapter 48, verse 14. Assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. It's the Lord directly working. Look in 51, chapter 51, verse 5. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples, the coastlands. They hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Or in chapter 52, just right before this passage in verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see what the salvation of our God. The, the arm of the Lord is the Lord himself directly acting in strength, in might, in power, bringing salvation, and it has this reach that's not just to this people of Israel. It's a worldwide reach. It's affecting nations. So God has promised to restore people, and the revealing arm, the, the powerful might and working of the Lord of this, strangely, is through the servants. The, the arm of the Lord is the servant, and, and the arm of the Lord and the servant, they, they cannot be disconnected, Right? You can't disconnect the arm and this servant. They, they go together. So what is said of this servant and this servant's work 
is an expression of the arm of the Lord working salvation and deliverance and restoration for his people. Strength and might then looks like this servant. Salvation and restoration and deliverance looks like this servant. Then when we look, what do we see? We don't see something mighty. This servant, like if we're just honest, doesn't look like much. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a, a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. So verse 2 is like, this seems like a plain person. This is a man. Normal growth. We could all look around and we see like, I, I think we know where he comes from and how he's growing. It seems fine. But the servant is this also this one in verse 2. And the servant doesn't fit the mold of one who you'd think to and look to as one who would deliver, as one who would maybe restore or save or bring or lead anything. He has no beauty that we should desire him. Like, that's what you think when you look at him. I like what one commentator said when he said that deliverers are dominating, forceful, attractive people who by their personal magnetism draw people to themselves. This is true of Israel too. Joseph... Joseph was described as handsome. People saw him as attractive. Potiphar's wife found him too attractive, right? It's like they wanted to follow him. It wasn't hard. It doesn't seem like for the transition to take place when he becomes the prince of Egypt for them to get behind this. He, he doesn't look like someone that they would not desire. What about David? David, 1 Samuel 16. He's called ruddy, which I don't even know, right? Like good color? In a masculine way, I guess. He, he's ruddy and handsome is what it's described. The ladies liked him too. Like he, people wanted to follow him. Here's a leader to follow. Here's one we can get behind. These guys look the part. These are guys to follow. And, and ones that any nation, if they're looking in, they would say, oh yeah, we could have that guy deliver us. We, we would want that guy to deliver. But this servant, he isn't described like that at all. I don't think that Isaiah is getting at that he's ugly. I don't think that's the case at all. But that he's just not particularly appealing. There's just nothing about him that attracts. Even the ways that he's described in kind of tree terms here, right? Like a root out of the ground. Like he doesn't look like a mighty oak in fertile soil that you look to with great expectation to give all sorts of shade and shelter that, that again, animals and birds could come and make their home there. He doesn't look like that. He's more of a shoot in the dirt. You'd have no expectation that it would provide any sort of shade, shelter, help for the birds of the air, that it would even grow very tall. It's one that you would, you'd come up upon if you had some, some loppers and you just like you would look in the dirt and you just lop it off without giving it a second thought. That's the picture of this servant. He doesn't look regal. He looks ordinary. He looks less like a king, more like a peasant. There's nothing, he says in his appearance, that really would draw anybody to him based on his appearance. None are going to pick him out of a crowd. None are going to pay attention to him. Like in, and actually, it seems the opposite is true. Verse 3 says even further that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Like again, if, if you're getting a schoolyard pick, right? You're, you're out there and like we've got to divide up teams. No one's picking this guy. Like, he's the last pick, it seems like. That's kind of what they're getting at. In fact, most people don't want him on their team. That's what verse 3 is. Now, I think when we read verse 3, it seems highly emotional, right? Like, 
despised, rejected. I don't think it's quite the same in the original. The original sense seems to be more that the world looks on this servant, and what it beholds when it looks on him is, it's just not one to follow. One to maybe, perhaps not just not follow, but let's keep our distance from this one a little bit. He's just another nobody. He's one of unworthy of our attention altogether. He, he's avoided. He's dismissed. He's treated poorly if he's treated at all. He's met with distaste if he's met. He is unwanted. He is disowned. And this is the arm of the Lord. How does that work? This is the one through whom deliverance comes? This is a strange servant, isn't it? In 2022, the Colorado Buffalo football team went 1-11. That's not a good record, and they're in a bad conference. <laughs> and so what do you do when you're 1-11 in a bad conference, you fire your coach, this guy's not delivering us, and you get a new one. Who do they go? They go get, you want to get the big name, right? They go get Coach Prime. You got primetime Deion Sanders. He becomes their coach. And, and you know what he says when he comes? He says, I'm coming. We're going to turn this thing around. He says, I'm, I'm bringing a couple things with me. I'm bringing my luggage, and I'm bringing Louie with me. And it took me a little bit. Like, what does, what does he even mean by that? Right? He says he's bringing players. Right? I'm, you better get ready because I'm, transfer portal is a real thing, and I'm going out, and I'm going to get the best ones, and I'm going to recruit the best people, and they're coming in here. So you might lose your job because I'm bringing Louie with me. That's his point. Now, if you're a player, that might, that might be a hard thing to hear. Um, but as a fan, if you like the Colorado Buffaloes, you're like, yes, yes. You know what? Better players, that means we have better teams. And better teams means here we have better records. Run 11, that was rough. So bring in Louie, whoever that is, bring in those guys to turn this thing around. That's what we want to hear. And God's people, when they're hearing about deliverance and restoration and salvation, that's likely what they want to hear. Well, yeah, someone like Joseph. We can get behind that. Or, or David, here's a mighty warrior, and he's also like, he's good looking. We want to follow this man. Bring in those kinds of people. If we're going to be exiled into a great kingdom like Babylon, we already see what the greatness of kings around us looks like. Assyria is kind of banging at our door right now. They look pretty impressive. So if we're going to be exiled and delivered from that, then give us a king. Make him look mighty. Tell us about his greatness. Give us the, the details of his might and what he can overcome. Show us his qualities that might be attractive for us to follow him when we, we don't know that we can trust him. Like, that's what we want to see. Tell us about his army and what kind of arsenal he's bring him, bringing with him. But the one that Isaiah speaks of, the one that he says is going to be high and lifted up, is the arm of the Lord looks barely like a servant, hardly like a deliverer despised and rejected by man. And this is the one bringing salvation? And yet, Isaiah speaks of this servant as if this servant is absolutely necessary. Notice the clever use in verses 2 and 3 of the word we. That the we, seeing this servant, are, are seeing his suffering. And seeing his rejection. And then that we becomes an our in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So this is not just a strange servant. This is a substitutionary servant. 
and that, that he is a substitute becomes front and center in this passage. The we has now become self-aware. And, and they recognize that the grief and the sorrow and the rejection and the suffering that that servant is bearing, that he bore, was not his own. There's a recognition taking place that this servant suffered for them, taking the place of others. He doesn't just suffer at the hands of people, but he suffers for people. There's, there's hints here in this verse, verse 4, hints of this being the scapegoat who bears the sins of the people and carries them out of the camp. That's the hints that are going on in the language that Isaiah is using. But you notice that, that it comes with suffering. He's bearing griefs and sorrows. He's stricken and afflicted and smitten. And there's a common belief among many of you that day that, that, man, if you're suffering, there's probably something that you did to deserve it. There's like this retribution, right? You did something wrong, and so you deserve to suffer. That's what Job's friends come and bring to him. The wisdom of their day. It's not bad wisdom. There's a lot of that in the scripture, like you reap what you sow. And so they would think if you suffered, then, then you probably deserved it. So Job's friends like, hey, what did you do? I didn't do anything. Like, I think you did. You need to check again. Like, they keep doing that. John 9, they come to this man who's born blind. Like, who sinned that this is what's going on? Who sinned? Like, that's what they thought. Here's a servant who's suffering. So they thought maybe, maybe he deserves it. Maybe it explains the actions of, of the way people treat him because he is one who deserves it. And yet here he is stricken in verse 4, smitten and afflicted by God. And it's so clear that it's not for his own sake. It's not for his own deeds. It's not because of him. Verse 5 makes this even more clear. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. There's a stark contrast, and it's meant to be there, between what he is doing and our. He was pierced, our transgressions. He's crushed, our iniquities. Chastisement on him brought us peace. Over and over and over again, in this one verse, we're seeing this is the substitute, this is the substitute, this is the substitute. The he is receiving the piercing, the crushing, the chastisement, the wounds, but the why is clear. That's all on the our side, if you're dividing it up. He gets all the suffering, all these things, and the why is because of our junk. Transgressions. Our transgressions, that's willful rebellion against God. Our iniquities, that's, that's a twisted nature, sinful natures, a chastisement. In other words, there's correction that's needed. And this servant is not suffering for innocent people. He's not suffering for sort of good people. The servant is suffering for wicked people, rebellious people, those who have rebelled against God. That's the clear connotations of these verses. His suffering is explained in language that, that's not just language of injury. His suffering is not just of injury. That the suffering that's explained here is more violent than that. It leads all the way down even to death. Amen. But this severe suffering is clearly substitutionary. Because the results of this, of our transgressions, our iniquities, is what? We get peace. We are healed. It's 
for others. On behalf of others and for others. The servant then again doesn't just suffer at the hands of people or with people but for people. And it's more explicit even in verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, notice us and we. They have now joined into this flock. That's what Isaiah has done with them. They put all this us and we. You're this flock now. And what is this flock like? They're a flock that have jumped the gate. They've pushed through the fence. They've wandered astray. And it's not just collectively. like You had a herd mindset, and you all just kind of... No, each one went his own way. That's the problem with the flock, the sheep going their own way. And Israel, they would have understood this image. Like, they had a lot of herding among them. They would have known, like, I keep trying to lead the sheep to green pastures and still waters. That seems poetic, so, like, let's do that. And, and yet they, they just looking down at the grass in front of them, not realizing that, like, we've got better places to go. And they won't listen. <laughs> I keep leading them and calling to them. They, they can sit behind and be focused in on the next clump of grass. But the consequences of these sheep going astray, where do they fall? They do not fall on the sheep here. They fall on the servants. Now, consequences have fallen on the sheep before, right? Isaiah is speaking of them of judgment and exile. They're going to receive some of that. But the consequences of being astray here isn't laid on the sheep, it's laid on the servant. This is a substitutionary servant. And again, not because of his sin. So the sorrow and the grief and the disfigurement that he endures are on the servant as the substitutes. They're not just the wear and tear of life. They're the consequences of transgressions and iniquities and sins and rebellion. In other words, all that he bears, he is doing as a substitute. It's his very work. And that iniquity that's laid on him is only his because he's a substitute. Because what becomes more clear as we move into the fourth section, starting in verse 7, is that this is a sinless servant, a sinless sacrifice. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't sin. There's not iniquity and transgression in him. And because of that, you would think like, okay, well, when you're led to the slaughter, you'd expect one under that situation to speak up, but the servant doesn't. He submits himself. There's another S for you. Add that to the alert. Submits. He submits himself to the suffering. He humbles himself underneath this affliction because he's the substitute, the, the sinless substitute. He, he has something charged against him, and he doesn't open his mouth to defend himself. He doesn't open his mouth, I think, in part because he is actually bearing sin. There's a real bearing of sin going on here. It's not his own, but it is a real bearing of sin. And because he is bearing sin and it's not his own, he can be described like this, like a lamb led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. And so he opens not his mouth, just filled with sacrificial language. This servant is a sacrifice. Remember, as you read verse 7, that this is the arm of the Lord. And he's led to the slaughter. This is no dumb lamb that doesn't know where he's going. This is a lamb who willingly submits himself underneath this suffering, who accepts this sacrifice as one that he is making on behalf of and for others. 
here is a sinless lamb led to the slaughter. That is sacrifice. That is sacrifice for sins. Where they would remember as they're hearing this lamb led to the slaughter. They would have heard of of Leviticus ringing in their ears. Of thinking of how they would take a lamb and they would pronounce sins over it. And they would slaughter it. And that's spoken of with this servant here. He's the one that steps in. And he's the one who is the substitute. What happens when you pronounce sins? You're saying, actually, what happens to this lamb is what should happen to me. But the servant steps in. And he actually is the one that says, what should happen to them should happen to me. And he steps in and he goes all the way to the grave. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave because he died with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so if you look at this from a a man's point of view, a human point of view, it looks like this servant, maybe he has done something wrong. Maybe he is cursed of God that he would be led to the slaughter and that his grave would be among the wicked. And here he has no one to speak up for him. That's kind of the the idea of verse 8. Like, where's a a circle of people, a generation as the word is translated, who's going to consider him and think about how we can speak up for justice here for him because he hasn't done anything wrong. that, That circle doesn't exist. And so he goes down to his grave. And though sinless, clearly sinless, right? He says it again. He's done no violence. There's no deceit in his mouth. He didn't open his mouth. He was silent before his shearers. Though sinless, his death was like that of one who was wicked. His burial was like one who was wicked. And this is the servant that Isaiah speaks of. How strange. Like he's a servant that is paradoxically explained. High and lifted up, arm of the Lord, and yet oppressed, afflicted, suffering, led to the slaughter, buried with the wicked. He's the one who suffers as a substitute and he dies as a sinless sacrifice. And again, we have to ask, this is how the Lord is bearing his arm? This is how... Deliverance and salvation and restoration are going to come to God's people. This is the one that Isaiah started out saying that we are to behold. It probably didn't seem to fit in their matrix of what they were looking for or in their matrix of a deliverer. It didn't seem to make sense with what you are promising, Isaiah. And at best, this picture of this deliverer and restorer is blurry. But it shouldn't be so blurry right now. Because who is this servant? 700 years later, or so, that question is asked. In Acts chapter 8, if you turn to that passage, there's a man, not from Israel, from another nation, who asks that very question. In verse 27, chapter 8, there's this Ethiopian And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit of the Lord said to Philip, because God had put Philip there, like he just put one on the tee for Philip, like, here's the nations, he's reading Isaiah, 
And here's where he says to Philip, go over and join us here. And Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I understand unless someone guides me? And he even invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And the passage that he was reading was this. Now like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, and so he opens not his mouth. That's verse 7 and 8 of Isaiah's next. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. And then this eunuch asked Philip, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say about himself or about someone else? So if you're asking, like, talking about a servant, who is this servant? That's actually a really good question. It was asked in the scripture so that we could, you know, maybe be spared a little bit of like, we don't know who this is. And he wants us to know, the spirit wants us to know, who is this servant? And so what does Philip do? He says, he opens his mouth and begins with this scripture, Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He told him the good news about Jesus. Jesus. The, the one who entered time-space history, who we know as Jesus Christ. So the servant, this is profound, that they say this in Acts chapter 8, that the servant that Isaiah spoke of seven, eight hundred years earlier in Isaiah 52 and 53 was now the one that they know and could recognize as Jesus Christ. The, the servant is Jesus. And Jesus himself and the Gospels, I think, clearly understand this. Perhaps this was one of the passages that Jesus meditated on often as he thought about his life and his ministry and the work that he was going to do. He might have gone to Isaiah chapter 53 and thought through those words over and over again during his earthly ministry. This is the one who's a strange servant, isn't he? He comes to the earth, and, and you're thinking, again, if deliverance is coming, let's bring in something mighty and great, and he enters in how? In a backwoods place, in a manger. Doesn't even have a spot for him in a home. And he's a baby. They're, they're help, they need someone to... Help them, right? They, he's not, didn't seem mighty here. And yet when they speak of him in his birth, like this is the mighty one. They speak of him as the savior who's going to save his people. Even when he's really young, the, you know, Anna and Simeon, they hold him in his arms and like, this is the one he's going to rescue people. And it doesn't look like much. Pretty young. He appeared ordinary. Like he, he doesn't amass a massive following before he sets out and starts doing miraculous things in his ministry, Right? He looks pretty ordinary. At one time in their ministry, like, hey, isn't this the carpenter's son? Because we're not sure we really recognize him as someone that stands out from a crowd. He grows normally. They know his parents, but none again are saying, like, hey, if we're drawing up sides, we've got Rome over here. We don't like them. We're going to draw up sides. We're going to pick this guy to lead us out of that. No one's picking him. And yet when he steps close to John the Baptist. John the Baptist sees him, beholds him, and says to everybody, wanting everybody to behold him as well, and they want, he wants him to hold him rightly. And what does he want him to behold? Not just the carpenter's son. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus doesn't come up to him and say, stop it. That's too much. I'm not the Lamb of God. No, Jesus, he knew. He doesn't stop his mouth. Several times during Jesus' ministry, many following him turn back because of the things he's saying. Like, I'm not sure this is the one. Maybe there's another. 
He doesn't look like much. He keeps saying things that are hard and weird. And I'm not sure this is the one to follow. He was often rejected. Certainly despised. Acquainted with grief and sorrow. I mean, think of the tomb of Lazarus where he sees his friend overtaken by death. He weeps. But yet Jesus knows, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, a profound statement that full of Isaiah 52, 53. The Son of Man, he didn't come to be served. He came as a servant to serve. And also, what does this servant do? To give his life as a ransom for many. There's some language there that, that strikes of Isaiah 53. He, he serves on behalf of others. Don't serve me. I'm here to serve you. And, and he particularly serves on behalf of others as a ransom. That's redemption language. That's purchasing language. And how does he purchase others? How is he ransoming? He says, with my life. I'll I'll give my life as a ransom. He understands his life as a substitutionary life. I'm ransoming others. I'm purchasing others. I'm redeeming others. He is the one who understood. I'm coming to seek and save the lost. I'm coming to heal the, the sick Those who need a doctor. He speaks of his death and his sacrifice over and over again, telling his disciples that this is what's coming. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. What does he also say? He sets his face like flint to go do it. He's willing. He's a willing sacrifice. He's not pushing against it. He dives right into it. He sets his face. He's determined to face this rejection and suffering and affliction and death. In John chapter 10, he he says of himself, I'm the door for the sheep. If they want to come and find restoration and deliverance, salvation, they they come through me. I'm that door that they come through. And I'm the one, same passage in John chapter 10, who lays down my life for the sheep. That's what I do. And what does he do? It Not as a victim. He's no victim in this. He says, I lay it down and I'll take it up again because I'm the one who can do that. He knows that his exaltation is found in his humiliation as he goes down even further to the point of death, even death on the cross. He, he says, the, the nations come to him in John chapter 12 and they say like, hey, we want to talk to Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, this hour is why I've come, that I might be lifted up. And what's he talking about being lifted up and exalted in John chapter 12? He's talking about how he's going to be crucified. That's his exaltation. He knows all these things. And then he's arrested and he's tried this false court, the false accusations against him. And what happens? He doesn't open his mouth. He understands himself to be that lamb that's led to the slaughter who's silently before his shearers, willingly taking on this role as not only a substitute, but a substitutionary sacrifice. And so he's led to the slaughter. The New Testament, they, they understand Jesus as the servant. We, we could go on and on. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, he is the one who's delivered up for our trespasses, similar language, raised for justification. In chapter 8, verse 3 of Romans, he is the one who is delivered for sin. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. In other words, that was a sacrifice language for sin. Or we could go 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That for our sake, not his own, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see the substitutionary language there that's similar to Isaiah 53 or in Philippians chapter 2 sums it up so well. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ who though he was in the form of God, he's the arm of God. 
He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He adds to his deity humanity. He comes as a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews talks about this servant as a great high priest who's sprinkling nations. He comes and he brings a blood offering, a sacrifice for sins, not a lamb, but himself, like Interesting image, right? The, he is the priest, who's the great high priest. He's also the sacrifice who brings the blood. He's all of those things. Hebrews talks about that. And then we go to 1 Peter, and 1 Peter talks about him uh, in, in great reflection, to, saying that this is the lamb who is without blemish. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he says, But the precious blood of Christ that was a lamb without blemish or spot, or in chapter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. That sounds familiar. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. Or we could go to Revelation where there's this lamb all over the place and this lamb looks as if it's been slain. The New Testament understands Isaiah 52 and 53 to be Jesus Christ. The one that Isaiah wants us to behold and all readers to behold. The one that the New Testament wants us to behold for salvation, for restoration, for deliverance is Jesus Christ. When you behold him, when you look to Jesus, when you see his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, what do you see? What do you see? This is a strange servant. The, you, the cross is humiliating. It doesn't look like much. It's bloody. I mean, to, to behold it would have been embarrassing for us. People hide their eyes from these kinds of things. It doesn't look like much, and it doesn't sound like much. The other day, someone was waiting in the foyer, and I was trying to weekly, very weekly, trying to explain, just briefly, get the gospel in, uh, saying, hey, we'd love to have you. We believe in the gospel and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And, and then they just asked, like, yeah, what's the Wi-Fi password? <laughs> it, it doesn't sound like much to talk about life, death of, of a Savior, and that's the one we're about. Well, then what's the Wi-Fi password? It doesn't look like much when you look at him. It's a strange servant. But this is a substitutionary servant, right? When you, when you behold him, do you see one who is bearing iniquities? Not his own, but another? Do, do you see one that's following this pattern of Isaiah 53, who's bearing our griefs, our sorrows, stricken, smitten by God, the, the afflictions that we deserve, the wrath from God that we deserve falling on him? Do you, do you see a substitutionary servant when you look at him? When you look at him, do you see one who's a sacrifice for sin? The... the Paul could say later, like, he is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. He's a sacrifice for me. Is that what you behold when you behold him? He's a strange servant. But when we look at him and we know the truth and the reality of our lives, we should see him rightly. We need to be informed by this passage that we've gone astray. There's where we fit. What a great definition of sin. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one to his own way. God, my way is better than your way. I'll do that. We're rebels. Jesus, he goes the way of the Lord, and he opens not his mouth, but ours, ours is wide open. 
Romans 3, remember in Romans 3, a lot of the, all of sin and fall short of the God, glory of God, a lot of Romans 3 is describing sins of the mouth. What a difference between this lamb who, who comes silently. We've gone astray. And this sin is, is not just trivial to God. It's, it's against God and it's not trivial because of who God is. They couldn't have talked about a deliverer, a restorer, one who brings actual restoration in kind of cheap language. Because they know, and Isaiah saw, he never could have let come through his lips something cheap after he saw the Lord high and lifted up to where he needed his tongue touched with a burning coal just to be in this presence. And the seraphim that are around need to cover their eyes. This is the same Lord who's offering deliverance here. And so when we talk about sin and going astray, it's not just shortfalls or mistakes. Like We're talking about rebellion, wickedness. And when we're informed that we've gone astray, that we've sinned, and we start to see our need, then we can behold this one rightly. Amen. And what do we behold when we know that we too have gone astray? We can behold something else too, that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When we behold Jesus on the cross, let's know that we've been pursued. We have all gone astray. We didn't go towards him, but he came towards us. He pursues us. He makes the move. Who's bearing their arm here? All that we're bearing is that we're going astray. And he's bearing his arm in restoration and salvation through this suffering servant. He bears his arm and he comes as this substitute. That's the bearing of his arm. He comes as this willing sacrifice. That's the bearing of his arm. When we look to him as those who have gone astray, we need to know that he has then pursued us. And when we behold him, we need to know that we're invited. That he is the only one because he is uniquely the servant who is the arm of the Lord and yet who can suffer at the hand of the Lord. There's some weird things going on there. He's both the Lord and suffering at the hands of the Lord at the same time. And so when we behold him, we need to know that when he offers what he offers, when he offers restoration and deliverance and salvation, that all of our iniquities can be dumped on him, that we can have our wounds healed that he actually offers it because this is the Lord at work. And we've been invited into that work, into full restoration. What do you see when you behold him? The world sees folly. The world sees a stumbling block, but to those who are being saved, who know they've gone astray and know their need before a holy God, they see power, righteousness, salvation. It's interesting that one of the ways that we're to behold him is together. And that this togetherness, this memorial that we're to do is, is a meal. And this meal is a meal of remembrance of not triumph and victory, unless you see it rightly. Because it's a meal looking at beholding death. Body torn, blood poured out. It's brutal. And yet we get to come receive because it's been accomplished for us on our behalf. Those are our iniquities he paid for, our sins that he took care of and took out. He was smitten and afflicted so that our wounds would be healed. He bore the stripes. We get the healing. If when you behold Jesus, that's what you behold. This meal is for you to remember his death, to remember what he has done on your behalf, to remember Isaiah 53. If when you behold him, you still see, I'm not sure looks weak, don't take this meal. Instead, we want you to keep beholding 
until you see the, the righteous Savior, the restorer, the deliverer, your salvation. Before you see that, don't take this meal. But if you see in this meal the one who worked your deliverance, your restoration, bringing you back to God, your salvation, then take this meal knowing that you only receive it at the work of his hand. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, our expectations and perceptions far too often deceive us. And had we lived when Jesus walked this earth, we too would have probably expected something else. Our hopes would have been rooted in a strong man, a conqueror of nations, someone who could overthrow Rome. We would have seen our greatest enemy as those who are outside of us. And yet, God, you knew better. You knew what you had to conquer in order to save us and deliver us, Lord. You knew that our greatest enemy is us. It's our own sin that we could not and could never cover on our own. And so you came down here, Lord. You left immeasurable riches. You left a state that we can only imagine and fall short even in our attempts. Lord, you left everything to come and walk among us and suffer and serve and endure such harsh treatment, God. We, we're blessed. We did not know our need. We did not want in our sin. We did not want it taken care of. We wanted things our way, and yet, Lord, because you knew better, you came and you did it your way. You did it Amen. the only way. Amen. And Lord, as we enter into a season of celebration, Lord, your resurrection, as we think about the events surrounding it, the prophecy pointing to it, I just pray, Lord, that we would behold you in truth, that we would behold you for who you are, that we would reflect on what you did, how you suffered, and how you overcame, that we would be reminded, Father, that you are in control and that, Jesus, you are at the right hand, and you are reigning. You were the perfect substitute. You were what we needed. You provided it. I just pray that our lives would reflect this, Lord. I pray that our lives would be lives of beholding, of worship, as this world needs to see it. They don't understand what they need. And we didn't either, but for your grace, Lord. 
Help us in our weakness. Help us to be bold. Help us to live as servants like you lived. We're thankful, God, that you are so faithful. We're thankful for your word, for sermons like these that just so quickly help us to regain perspective. We just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.